It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. Anywhere across the country, if you download the Radio Player Canada app and type in 106.5 ELMNTFM or 95.7 ELMNTFM and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Of course, 106.5 is uh, the coordinates for Toronto, 95.7 being the coordinates for our Ottawa station. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show... Tim Ward, and uh, Tim is actually here to tell us about something very, uh, well, it's very timely. In fact, uh, he wants you to think about this for tomorrow because uh, he is the co-owner of uh, Intermedia Communications Training, Inc. It's based out of Washington, D.C., where he works with global organizations, helping them communicate uh, better. He is a former print journalist and the author of 10 books, and uh, Tim is also the publisher of Change Makers Books, he, and he lives in Maryland with his wife and business partner. And uh, he's here to talk to us about trying to put truth back into politics. Uh, Pro Truth is the name of a new book he has out, a co-authored book, A Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics, and uh, released by John Hunt Publishing and Change Maker Books. Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure to be your guest. Putting truth back into politics. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> that that seems like so long ago for some reason. Um, you know, it, it, it's interesting, isn't it, how, how things have changed and how things have accelerated and how we use words and how our use of words change and the meaning of words. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, that, that new word which sprung into the the lexicon of political discourse in 2016, post-truth and post-truth politics combined with alternate facts Mm. really were for me frightening words to hear, frightening words to see picked up and um, frightening to see in the U.S. that a candidate could say things that were lies that the media would then debunk and the candidate would then say, oh, the media they're perpetuating hoax. The media, they're not being truthful with you. He'd double down and gaslight mm. uh, the, the audience. Mm. Um, as, as a former journalist myself and as somebody who teaches the importance of truth-telling in communication, I found it uh, horrifying to witness what was going on in the American political system and um, really was determined to do what I could to try and make a difference and my journey to there quickly led me to a man named Gleb Tepersky, my mm-hmm. co-author, yeah. and an organization he founded called the Pro-Truth Pledge. Right. We'll get to that in a minute. But, you know, as you were talking there, I couldn't help but think, uh, in looking back and, and thinking of those words that we were hearing. You know, I think a lot of people thought about, of course, Big Brother, 1984, <laughs> George Orwell, all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, thinking that, well, wait a minute, it's not 1984, you know, it's 2016, but, uh, you know, maybe the timeline was off a little bit. Well, exactly. And indeed, um, one of the things that Orwell got really brilliantly right was that when people separate language from reality, from true things that happen, then um, 
politics isn't just about manipulating your vote. It becomes manipulating your thinking and um, disempowering people, right? Because then mm. truth becomes what your political leaders say it is. Right. Um, and that's totalitarianism, right? That was one of the things that ended up bringing the Soviet Union to its knees is because it forced its people to repeat a truth, to, to believe a truth that they all knew was a lie, right? Mm. Uh, and um, I lived inside of a system like that myself for a, a time. I, I taught English in China mm. in the 1980s, and I saw my students have to say things publicly that they knew were false, but there was a political crackdown at one point. They all had to say um, these protests against the government on campus were caused by Taiwanese spies and uh, hooligans, mm. even though they knew it was their fellow students were out there protesting. Mm. It was devastating for me to see people have to speak a lie. And that to me is part of the message of this book. People may start out thinking, you know, yeah, Trump, he tells some lies, but I like his policies. So what the hell, <laughs> right? doesn't matter if he lies, but this is the thing. If you start out right. by letting your political leaders lie to you, mm. it's only a matter of time before they tell you what the truth is you have to believe and they'll put you in prison. If they don't, if you don't parrot mm. their lies, that's not a fable. That's what we saw in the Soviet Union. We've seen in China, what we're seeing today in modern Russia, Turkey, Iran, places where authoritarianism has, you know, has, has taken over more, more democratic regimes. Yeah. You know, when you, when you, um, when you say that, what comes to mind is, is what is going through the mind of the person that is saying those things? Uh, of course, they're trying to manipulate, but do they understand? You think they, they fully understand the, the ramifications of, of, of what they're saying? And then do they start to believe their own lies? Well, you know, let's let's talk about the the liar in chief that we have in the United <laughs> States right now, Donald Donald Trump. There have been interesting things written about whether or not he even knows what's mm. truth or what's lies. Mm. There's that famous thing where um, he was having this this uh, this discourse on stage with Justin Trudeau, mm. and uh, he talked about how the U.S. Uh, is on the deficit side. You know, that Canada gains mm. more in terms of dollars. Right. From, from trade. And afterwards, Trump said, so I said, no, you know, you were the losers in this, you know, Canada gains more. He said, I didn't know if it was true or not. I just said it. Turns out it was true. Right. He said that in his campaign rallies. Right. This is something that we see in Trump a lot. Yeah. He basically makes stuff up right. on the spot. Right. And who knows whether or not it'll be seen as, as true, but for his followers, and I have to call them followers rather than People who just, you know, support a party. They're not supporters, they're followers. Mm-hmm. Whatever he said becomes like it's true. This is really turning truth on its head. It's really making truth almost like back in the old days where the tribal leader was the lawgiver, right. was the person who said, this is so. And anyone who disagrees will be put to death, yeah. right? So it's going back to a kind of tribalism where truth is what's spoken by your leader rather than something that's determined by fact. And you can perhaps run a per tribe that way, but you cannot run a democracy that way. Okay, well, we want to get to the, uh, the pro-truth pledge, but, but before we get there, you said you lived in China for a while and you saw something yeah. that was happening there. How yeah. did you feel seeing that going on at your core? How, you know, I can't imagine being inside something like that and watching it and, and, and being able to not say anything or, or know that yeah. it's, not, it's not wise to say anything. 
here's what happened. I was teaching English and part of the, uh, my English writing classes, I had students keep journals mm. and every week I collect their journals and read them. And these protests were going on on campuses and students were writing to me about what they meant. Those protests meant to them about how, you know, this was this possibility of maybe getting some democracy. Mm. Um, you know, these students, by the way, they were told, this is what you're studying. They were all studying to be middle school teachers. They didn't want to be, but in a totalitarian society, people are assigned their roles. Mm. None of them were happy with mm. the life that they had ahead of them. And um, so these protests were a way for them to begin to feel maybe I can have some freedom in my life, mm. some self-expression. I was reading this in all of their journalists, their journals, and then there was a big crackdown. Um, people were removed from head office. It was pre-Cheneman. It was the, the crackdowns before Cheneman Square. And, I, and classes were canceled this day that it happened. I happened to walk into my classroom because I needed something there. And I saw all my students sitting in little groups of three or four at the front of the room was the class political monitor. And he was kind of embarrassed. I said, what's going on? And he explained to me that they were having a political session where a party member was sitting with each of these little clusters. They'd been told that the party has determined that Taiwanese spies and hooligans were behind these protests. Mm -hmm. And every single student in those little clusters had to answer the question to the political minder, what do you think mm -hmm. was going on? They all had to repeat this lie. Mm -hmm. I sat there and watched this and it was life. David, it was like feeling a knife go into my own heart because I'd been nurturing these students for months. I'd been mm -hmm. reading their journals and reading about their hopes. Yeah. And I was listening to them have to betray themselves right. by what they were forced to say. Otherwise something could go in their record. Mm. And that's what I feel today in the United States that we don't even know what we're losing as, as we're losing our hold on truth as it doesn't seem to matter that Trump's told 20,000 lies. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, it, pro-truth and uh it you know the first thing i guess that you say is, is to empower citizens to recognize and resist political lies and deceptions how how do we start doing that well um there are some easy ways the first is not to tune out i have to say many of my friends they're tuning out they're mm. limiting their news they literally can't stand the stress of living in this uh. in this country um, be because of what's happening. But right. I say, strap yourself, tie yourself to the mast, mm. right? right. <laughs> keep your ears open, keep your eyes open, because bearing witness counts. And if you don't bear witness and feel the pain of it, then you aren't going to be in a, in a powerful position. You're not going to care enough. That doesn't mean don't take care of yourself, but don't turn away. And then the second thing is when you engage on social media, um, recognize lies and be very careful you don't unwittingly spread misinformation. Uh, I have to say, for those on the left side of the political spectrum, it's tempting, right, to fight fire with fire, to fight lies with lies. Mm. But, you know, I say then people who are undecided or even people who are on the, on the, the, the side right now of the Trump camp, I wouldn't even call them Republicans, I'll say the Trump camp, they can say, see, everybody lies. <laughs> so, no. Don't let lies get spread. And the, the pro-truth pledge involves a commitment not to spread misinformation online and to put the onus on you to fact check before you share anything. And, and that in itself creates a less deceitful 
sphere in which you are you are operating in. Right. You, you know, and, and you're you're bringing up things I remember thinking about um, during uh, during the last four years, and. Uh, and you know, I I always had this vision of of and and you know, not taking away anything from from Donald Trump. He is the president of the United States, and he was elected that. But you know, I always had this vision of uh, of when when seeing him out there and doing because everybody was saying what what's what what's he going to do right what's, what what's next kind of thing, and I always thought. He's he's like this real good master of of uh, almost like a uh, a magician. He's showing you this hand. You know, he's showing you got your his hand in front of your face, and he's going, "Watch this!" But you really should be watching the hand that he's got behind his back. You know that you can't see because that's what is. Re- so he's this. He, it's almost like this master uh, uh, of of deception that he's got going on. And then, you know, I don't. You know what I mean? It, it, that's what it felt like in some ways. You are absolutely right. Uh, in, in fact, let's remember Donald Trump made his living as a real estate wheeler dealer. Mm. And he uh, got lots of people to invest in buildings, which ultimately many of them went bankrupt or they didn't get paid for the work that they, they did. He was very good at the con, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So his book, The Art of the Deal, is really the art of the con. Right. And he basically took that real estate expertise, added a dose of celebrity, mm-hmm. a uh, a, a Twitter handle that, that that broke out because of birtherism, a big lie about Obama and where he was born. And mm. then like all of those skills made him a great presidential candidate to tell people what they wanted to hear, even though what they wanted to hear was a lie. Mm. And if you look at those, if you look back at those early campaign videos, he was really great at listening to what the crowd responded to and telling them more of that. Right, and this is this is a, a a masterful, the masterful art of deceiving people. Right, mm-hmm. you know, you tell them what they want to hear. The book Pro Truth that I've written goes into why those kinds of lies work and how you can start to protect yourself against them. Yes, that's can, step one. Okay, so can you explain a little bit of that to us and what you mean by that? Sure. Our first chapter um, contains nine lies that politicians tell. We then add one in the second chapter. So there's really 10 different kinds of lies. And while it's tempting to think all politicians lie, it's more accurate to say all politicians are tempted to lie. (laughs) They will lie less if they're held accountable. Mm. They'll lie less if the media exposes them Mm. or if they lose votes. Mm. Now, Donald Trump's kind of like a super predator, however, Mm -hmm. who said when the media lies, ah, no, you're the ones. Right. <laughs> who, sure. are, who are lying and his followers said yeah we hate the press yeah Oof. so it falls on us more as citizens to push back right. and to use our social media to our advantage so identify those lies i say become like a bird watcher of lies mm. recognize oh this is this type of lie here's how it works and here's how i can keep it from doing its damage mm. Uh, now, I want to talk about the most insidious kind of lying the politicians do. Sure. Called the illusory truth effect. Okay. And this is something that has been researched by cognitive scientists. When we hear something again and again, we start to believe it's true, even if we know it's a lie. Mm. And Trump knows you say it again and again and again, and people We'll start to believe it. We'll yeah. start to want to believe it, right? <laughs> Crooked Hillary. He's, he's a master at yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. He really is. He really is. Yeah. 
Yeah. I, I can't tell you how many times in 2016, 2016, um, I would talk to people who would say, yeah, you know, I just don't really trust Hillary. I don't know why. It's <laughs> just something about her. Mm. And I know why, because they'd heard crooked Hillary a thousand times and the news media would report it. Every time they would quote Trump in a tweet, they would quote him saying crooked Hillary. And that was like worn like a groove. Well, very clever on his part. You got to say it's clever on his part and especially the media playing right into it. You know, they, they they became his advertising. Absolutely. The media has gotten a little better at this. They now say Trump has said without evidence mm. the following false claim <laughs> rather than say the false claim. And then, right. then, and of course, this claim is false. It's said without evidence. Mm-hmm. When we hear something, we immediately consolidate it. And when we hear it, because we're about naive creatures, right? We're basically primates who learned how to communicate on the African savanna. We're trusting by nature. When something gets inside our mind and then we're told, and this might be false, we still kind of believe it. Because belief is not really binary, yes or no. It happens on a scale. Once lies get inside, it's very hard to be resilient against their impact. Well, believe this. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That's 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Tim Ward. We are talking about his new book, co-authored, Pro-Truth, A Practical Plan for Putting Truth Back into Politics. And it's a pleasure to have him on the show and a fascinating one, of course, leading up to the uh, November 3rd election tomorrow. Maybe you might learn something. Maybe there might be something in this discussion that helps you uh, just view things slightly differently or at least gain some perspective in terms of how to uh, uh, get through and sift through some of the, the things that, uh, that have been said over the last four years and maybe in the next 24 hours. So, uh, Tim, again, welcome to the show. Uh, you were just talking about some of the things that uh, that you you have laid out in your book about uh, how uh, politicians uh, use lies uh, to to manipulate to get us to believe the lie over a period of time by repeating and repeating things, um, and then um, and then people start to believe that. So how do we then start to reverse that process? What what do we have to do as as voters and as people that are listening to politicians to sift through all this stuff so that we can get a real sense of what they're saying and and then be able to make honest decisions based on that. Right. Okay, so let me come back to pushing back against the illusory truth effect. Yeah, sure. So first of all, you, you, it helps if you recognize that someone – has a reputation for being a liar. So if you, if you, then you can tune your ears into, am I being sucked into believing something that's not true? So the first thing you then do is notice if there's a repetition of a claim without information backing it up, right? So um, let's take, take poor crooked, crooked Hillary. Trump said that so many times, but what was the information used to back it up? There wasn't really much, you know, her emails, uh, Mm. Benghazi, but what was, what was it about that that was crooked since you'd been investigated so many times for this? So lack of information should cue you, wait a minute, somebody may be pulling the illusory truth effect on me. Mm-hmm. Ask yourself, why is, if there were information, wouldn't it be used? You know, clearly if there right. were information, 
Well, like, let's say voter fraud right now in the U.S. Trump is right now saying, oh, mail-in battling. There's so much fraud. Right. It's fraudulent. Their election's going to be rigged. But he's not setting any evidence yes. or very, very easily disprovable evidence. Yes. So you say if there were evidence, wouldn't it be cited? Okay. So lack of evidence means given this person's reputation, that may well be a lie. Now what you do is reverse the statement and ask yourself, if it were true, what would that mean? Mm. So let's take the um, um, mail-in voting is 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 right. uh, is likely fraudulent. Yes. Re- to reverse that, you'd say mail-in voting is reliable and a safe way to vote. Mm-hmm. What would that mean? Well, that would mean that a lot of votes will get counted by people who are afraid of COVID. Mm. And don't you want that? Don't you want everybody's vote to count? Right. So, okay, so if that were true... Why would a candidate be opposed to that? Well, maybe because they feel that they're not going to get enough votes to win an honest election. So, ah, now behind voting, uh, you know, mail-in voting is fraudulent. You see a fear of this candidate Mm -hmm. that they're going to lose. And this is, this is an effort to keep them from losing by spreading a lie. Then the fourth step, tell others what you've discovered. Just simply say, you know, making this claim without any evidence mm. means he's afraid that mail-in ballots will can't count. That means he's afraid of what people really want in the election. Mm. So that's just one example of how you can switch this around. Now, what's important in that is that when you're doing the switch around, you don't just say the opposite. So you don't say not crooked Hillary. What right. if Hillary is not crooked? You say um, honest Hillary or you say Hillary... Hillary, who's never, never been charged with a crime, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Does that better ma- match up to the facts? I mean, she was Secretary of State for four years. Mm. She was investigated so many times um, and has not been charged with anything. Mm. Well, what if she's honest? Well, actually, that makes her a more appealing candidate than mm. Donald Trump, who's got a reputation for being a liar. Mm. Mm-hmm. So that flip is essential right. to protecting yourself. I guess the other thing that politicians are really good at is embellishing those facts as well to make them seem larger than they actually are, even if there is a a little bit of truth in it. Right. Absolutely. So um, this is uh, hyperbole. Mm. And um, Trump himself talked to great length in his book, The Art of the Deal, about um, using hyperbole in in deals. This is the greatest. It's Mm. the best. Well, he used that on, on the campaign stump all the time. Mm-hmm. But you'll notice he uses what, what we called in our book deceptive hyperbole. It's exaggeration to give you a false sense of how things are. Great example. Mm-hmm. NAFTA, the worst trade deal ever in the history of trade deals, right? right? right. <laughs> now, let me speak to our Canadian audience here. <laughs> we generally love NAFTA, but... The truth is, it was also very good for the United States. Mm. If you look at um, an economic analysis, and I'll take what the economists did with the deal that Trump created to replace it, uh, the Mexico-U.S.-Canada uh, mm-hmm. deal, mm-hmm. Uh, the economists said there's actually very little difference between the two. Uh, <laughs> and overall, what it's likely to do is reduce trade a small fraction. So it actually is ultimately going to harm these three economies a bit. What does Trump say? His new deal is the best trade deal ever in the history of trade deals. Of course. Right? Right. So 
It's just hyperbole, but it's deceptive hyperbole. It makes you think that something significant was done, a bad thing replaced with a good thing. Well, that yeah. is a lie. Yeah. And of course, in, in, and he's always doing that, and that's to always. bolster himself, right? That's always. Right. Right. Well, maybe not always. That might be hyperbole, but mm-hmm. <laughs> 70% of the time. <laughs> right. So um, that's another thing you can listen for is whenever, whenever a politician speaks in always, the best, the worst, Whenever they speak in absolutes, question, wait a minute, what percentage? You know, mm. um, and any claim as the greatest, the first, the worst mm-hmm. is likely to be false. So why are they lying about that? Mm-hmm. What's the reality? Become curious about a percentage. Uh, Tim, your, your uh, co-author, Dr. Tabersky, he, he was, of course, from Russia. His parents were from Russia. And he, he... Moldova, actually. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And um, – so he he states about his experience uh, of in in that regime as well, and and he was he, you know he he talks about you know his experience of course in, in seeing this kind of stuff this kind of of wording and this kind of of um, deception coming into the United States. Um, what was your what was your um, relationship? What did you learn from that experience of working with him on this? Well. Um... Dr. Tsvarsky is really the closest thing to a genius I know in my in my life. <laughs> he's one of the smartest folks that I've ever met. And what's interesting is he's taken his expertise in cognitive neuroscience, mm-hmm. and he's really seen as something so valuable for people that he's written a bunch of books. He set up the Pro-Truth Pledge. He wants people to protect themselves from the cognitive biases that make us easily fall into bad decisions and mm. easily pray to liars. Mm. So he is like the Bruce Lee, <laughs> the martial arts expert teacher of protecting yourself with mental flips mm. you can use so that you don't fall prey to somebody who wants to mug you and beat you up mm. with political lies. Right. Want to lure you into a back alley and take your money because that's what lying politicians <laughs> want to do. Right. So uh, I think it's an amazing combination between this this deep intellect he's got and he's done research on how cognitive biases actually work on us mm. and how we can protect ourselves. He bases almost everything he does in science and research, but then he makes it practical. He makes stuff you can pick up and use. He turns that research into nunchucks mm. <laughs> <laughs> that we can use to push back against those who would deceive us and. Mm. That's what the pledge is all about. That's what the book Pro Truth is all about. It's a way to protect ourselves. Tim, really fascinating speaking with you. I, I really wish we had more time to, and, and you know, maybe we can follow this up with a second interview post election because I'm sure there'll Please. be more to talk to. But before we end, uh, what what would you like people to know? going into the next 24 hours as they look at this election in the United States and what to think about and, uh, you know, either whatever side they might be sitting on right now, thinking about this election, you know, what would you like them to to consider? Uh, I'd like them to think about this election as not just a vote that the American people are giving on who they want to be president, but it really is a vote about what kind of a country do they want to live in. Do they want to live in a country that is based on evidence and facts? Or do they want to live in a country that will follow a charlatan like the Wizard of Oz 
will tell them what they want to hear, what some of them want to hear. And um, including that the pandemic will go away. Mm. Trump said just a few days ago, you, you're sick and tired of hearing COVID, COVID, COVID. Well, you won't hear about it so much after I'm elected. <laughs> <laughs> right? Scary, scary stuff. And what happens in America does not stay in America. And America used to be this example. I mean, in the places I've lived in all around the world, people look to America as, you know, as a shining city on a hill and as an example of democracy, mm. an example of freedom that others could aspire to. Mm. This nation is tarnished that reputation, and I believe November 4th, they could well lose it if they vote for a chronic liar who's really dragged this country down so bad. I would urge my Canadian, my fellow Canadian citizens who have relatives and friends south of the border to ask them to consider how truth matters in this election. Um, I believe even for those who may be... uh, following what their conservative religious teachers tell them, vote for Trump, for vote for anti-abortion, remind them the Bible says the truth will set you free. And just as that's true, so it's true that a lie will bind you in chains. Mm. And I fear that's the path the American people will take if they follow Trump in this next election. Tim, uh, fascinating speaking with you, and I really appreciate you taking the time to join us on the show. My pleasure, David, and I wish all of your um, all of your listeners uh, uh, hang on, hang in there, hang in there with us. Uh, yeah, this is an important time. Listen, you know, let's let's make a date uh, to follow up and talk. Uh, maybe in the next week or so, uh, you know, we'll see if we can connect uh, because I think it would be fascinating to follow up to hear what you have to say uh, about uh, what transpires uh, after the election. And, and get your sense of, of what might be unfolding and, and how uh, these truths uh, could be utilized and or these uh, ongoing, uh, you know, the, the tricks and the, and, the, and the truths that are not being said uh, might, be, might be able to be uh, uh, moved forward after, after the election as well, um, if that's okay with you. I would love to come back and um, and speak with you and share with your listeners again and see what's happened after America's own moment of truth. <laughs> Great, nicely said. <laughs> That's Tim Ward. He's a best-selling author. We've been talking to him about Pro Truth. It's a new book he has out, uh, co-authored with uh, Doctor. Sapersky. And uh, it's a practical plan for putting truth back into politics. Released by uh, released. Uh, pardon me. Into, into politics. And uh, it's how to turn back the tide of post-truth politics, fake news, and misinformation. So a pleasure once again to have him on the show, and we look forward to having him back. That is this part of the program. Don't go away because we have more coming up right after this. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you type in those coordinates as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M and then listen on your device of choice, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show Rachel Plotkin. She is the Boreal Project Manager with the David Suzuki Foundation. And... uh, Rachel says, working on species at risks involves three core things. 
Can you guess what they are? Well, what she thinks they are is frustration, <laughs> creativity, and love. And I think that makes perfect sense. Rachel, welcome to the show, first of all. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. And uh, we're here to talk about a letter that was sent to Procter & Gamble uh, from Canadians. About 3,000 Canadians signed this uh, petition to go to uh, Procter & Gamble to their uh, their annual shareholders meeting that took place in Cincinnati, Ohio. And the reason for that was to ask the company to start to become more responsible in terms of uh, how it's using the the forests that it is, of course, uh, utilizing from Ontario for many of the products that it produces, including toilet paper, if that's not correct. That is correct. So how and and why did you and uh, the David Suzuki Foundation get involved with this and, and what were you hoping to achieve? we're trying to change status quo practices and make big corporations like Procter & Gamble realize that they're accountable to the consumers and that the consumers actually care about the products that they're buying and they want to know that those products are not, for example, coming from the homes that caribou need to survive and that the products are extracted with Indigenous consent Mm -hmm. and are not trespassing Indigenous rights. Yeah, and of course, uh, speaking of that, we we know that uh, Ontario recently uh, passed some some legislature uh, 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 laws that said they could actually they were making it easier essentially for uh, companies to uh, go in. There's not going to be as long of an audit pro- uh, process for uh, companies to start uh, looking and logging, and part of that process involved. Uh, taking away some of the environmental concerns and, and uh, some of those uh, requests to go to uh, Indigenous communities and ask for a, a, a prior consent, correct? Yes, and Ontario has been on a long road of environmental deregulation. Um, one of the things, I work a lot on wildlife issues, and one of the things that they have absolutely gutted is the Endangered Species Act in Ontario. And that is a law that was put in place to uphold the responsibility of the province to recover species that are at risk of extinction. And one of those species is boreal woodland caribou. And boreal woodland caribou are threatened with extinction across Canada, including in Ontario, and they continue to decline under status quo logging practices that companies like Procter & Gamble are supporting when they source from Ontario companies. Why would they want to reverse something like that? What would their thinking be behind taking animals that are at risk off of endangered lists? For what reason? Well, in Ontario, the forestry industry has not been supportive of the need to protect caribou habitat since the Act was brought into force. So the forestry industry had actually successfully lobbied to be exempt from the Endangered Species Act. And for most species at risk, we know, we have a general sense of what they need. Like they, they need, they live in forests or they live in streams or they live in the ocean, but we don't know exactly how much disturbance is too much for them to survive. But for boreal woodland caribou, we actually do have that information. Um, it came from the federal government for its responsibility under the Federal Species at Risk Act. And it determined a relationship between the amount of disturbance in each range and the level of calves that were surviving. Mm-hmm. And it directed every province to maintain a minimum of 65% of each range in undisturbed condition. That's like 
uh, intact forest or primary forest that is um, affords caribou a chance of avoiding their their predators, which are primarily in Ontario wolves. And the Ontario Forestry Companies um, have not wanted to do that. So they have lobbied against the Endangered Species Act. They've said that the science isn't strong enough. They've said that maybe climate change is playing more of a role than we know, and we should hold off on doing any habitat management initiatives until we know the impact of climate change. They've basically stalled and launched some pretty aggressive misinformation campaigns saying caribou are more common than deer. Um, and they've also done a number of campaigns that say, you know, if any caribou are protected, it will shut down entire economies when really the things that are driving the declines in forestry are mechanization and global market prices. So there's been a huge lobby by industry to maintain status quo operations and to fight any conservation measures. And we're saying to companies like Procter and Gamble, this is an acceptable, you guys are, uh, humongous company with incredible resources and you have the resources to ensure that you're sourcing products that aren't coming from places that might be uh, driving further caribou decline. You say that you need about 65% of the forest to be remaining. Is that what you're saying of any given area? Yeah, a minimum of 65% to be undisturbed and disturbance comes in two different types. There's natural disturbances, things like fires, but the primary driver of caribou decline, um, and there's recent science papers that show this, is industrial disturbance. So things like the actual clear cuts, and then after you clear a forest, the new browse attracts other ungulates, things like deer and moose, and that attracts more predators, and the predators are indiscriminate. They prey upon more caribou. Mm. But also the roads, which are used as travel corridors mm. and are permanent disturbance and fragment ranges from the intact spaces that caribou need to survive. So if we know that that's what they need, 65%, and the, the, the companies are saying we don't want to abide by that, and we don't believe that the, the numbers are accurate, et cetera, et cetera, um, what do they want to log in a given area? I think uh, it won't surprise your listeners to learn that they just want to keep expanding their footprint. I mean, they basically the model of forestry in Ontario is to access everywhere, and with the hope that those areas will then regenerate and support caribou in the future, even though that is not scientifically proven. Right. But I think it's important to state that organizations like the David Suzuki Foundation aren't opposed to logging. What we want to see is just limits, um, limits that safeguard wildlife survival put into place so that there isn't this like perpetual growth of the industrial footprint so that it makes it us unable to share the forest basically with wildlife and, and caribou are an umbrella species. So I talk a lot about caribou, but there's also scientific literature that says that if you can protect the habitat for caribou, you're protecting the habitat for numerous other species that also depend on, on undisturbed forest habitats. Right. Sure. Of course. Um, you know, you, you used a phrase there in the hope that, um, that, it, they, that they will grow back and provide the environment needed for the animals and the caribou in, in the future. But what would history tell us about industry and how they have treated uh, those kind of words in the past? And, and what has been the result? There aren't any peer-reviewed um, examples of caribou reoccupying areas that have been industrially logged at a range scale and at a population scale to date. I mean, I hope that it happens because... If it doesn't happen, then we're basically saying goodbye to a number of caribou populations where that disturbance threshold has already been passed. But basically, when you're managing for species at risk, it's 
the most <laughs> perfect opportunity to employ the precautionary principle, which is there's a lot of uncertainty. So basically we have to act in a way that safeguards, that tips, that tips the scales towards caribou survival instead of gambling on their future, which is what Ontario and a number of other provinces are doing. And, and talking about tipping um, brings to mind just another problem with caribou management is that a lot of times people talk about this, the concept of balancing. We need to balance our economic and ecological values. Mm. And that in a political sphere, that doesn't work. It's just a landscape of ever diminishing returns for a species like caribou. Like maybe 20 years ago, there was a politician and there was um, a thousand hectares that caribou depended upon. And someone said, we need to balance. And that politician said, okay, you can have 500. And then five years later, there's another politician that says, okay, we need to balance this 500 industry. You can have 250 Mm. until it gets to the state where we are now. And there are some caribou populations in Alberta that have basically you know, 5% or less of their habitat remaining. And there's still talk within the political sphere about balancing economic and environmental values. And I think we know what caribou need to survive. The minimum 65% undisturbed range actually only gives caribou a 60% probability of survival, but at least it tips the scales towards them persisting. But where we know what caribou need to survive, we just need to implement it. We need to change our practices so that they are setting limits on the growth of the footprint of industries like forestry. And one of the things that um, we called upon Procter Gamble to do is there's a number of voluntary certification systems. So the province at present isn't um, living up to its responsibility to safeguard wildlife on by any means. It's more, you know, pushing forward business in every opportunity um, and pushing forward development But there are some voluntary certification systems like the Forest Stewardship Council. And the Forest Stewardship Council actually has an indicator for caribou habitat that's about the application of those disturbance thresholds. And it requires free prior and informed consent from adjacent Indigenous communities. And that's really the gold standard by environmentalists. And that is something that um, also can create a reward in the green marketplace. There's a number of purchasers that have prioritized um, the procurement of FSC products. And so it's one of the asks to Procter & Gamble on both the caribou front and the indigenous rights fronts is that they only purchase from FSC certified forests. And Mm. unfortunately what they are saying is all of our products are certified, but they are referencing other certification schemes Mm. like the sustainable forestry sustainable forestry Institute that doesn't have those high requirements. What do you know about its letter, that letter and how it was accepted? Anything? It, our letter was a part of a, um, a growing movement of conservation organizations across Canada and North America. And at that meeting in October, um, there was actually a bit of a coup in which 67% of the shareholders voted on a recommendation that held Procter & Gamble to greater accountability in terms of how it's sourcing its um, fiber from forests. That sounds promising. It is promising. I think companies like Procter & Gamble need to recognize that we're in changing times. And, you know, when we sent them our letter, they sent back a number of things that basically I personally would consider greenwashing. They just say, you know, we're buying all of our products come from certified forests. But as I just explained, 
if they're certified by something that's not FSC, then that, that doesn't really hold much meaning to right. environmental organizations and to many indigenous nations. You know, they say it protects biodiversity and it, it doesn't. Uh, caribou are continuing to decline under status quo forest management um, across Ontario and, and most other provinces in Canada that haven't adopted the disturbance threshold. They say they're ensuring no deforestation, but that also isn't accurate. Some of my colleagues have been documenting the fact that um, even landing strips often are causing deforestation, which means that they cause a permanent scar on the land. They convert what used to be a forest into what is now a non-forest. And I think, you know, Procter & Gamble also needs to hear that there's a growing movement where people are thinking twice about the disposability of products. You know, like we just saw there's movement on plastics, but that doesn't mean that we want to move from plastic straws to paper straws that we just also throw out every time after we use them or toilet paper that comes from primary forests that we use and then immediately flush down, flush down the toilet. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. we still want to flush toilet paper down the toilet, but we want it to come from recycled content for sure. things that have such a, you know, we're only using for two seconds or if we're blowing our noses mm-hmm. or for, you know, the idea of like a swifting our floors or whatever it is, all these mm. products that we then use and then discard. I think right. there is a growing awareness among Canadians and of course, not every Canadian. Um, but I do believe that people's attitudes towards things like that are starting to change and people are calling on companies that use unrecycled content to um, significantly increase the amount of recycled content that they use. Mm. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, anywhere across the country. If you download the Radio Player Canada app, type in one of those two coordinates, as well as E-L-M-N-T-F-M, and then listen on your device of choice 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My guest here on Moment of Truth is Rachel Plotkin. She is the Boreal Project Manager with the David Suzuki Foundation. It's a pleasure to have her on the show. And we're talking about paper. Uh, we're talking about uh, recycling paper. We're talking about uh, companies that you use our forests for the purposes of, of of producing products that we use every day, such as toilet paper, such as Kleenex tissue, and other items that are taken from our forests. They're they're taking down our forests to be used for these uh, items that we then uh, use once, as as just pointed out by Rachel, and and throw away. There was a letter sent to Procter and Gamble. Three thousand Canadians signed the letter, and it went to the Cincinnati, Ohio, for the Procter & Gamble shareholder meeting. Basically, it was telling them to get in alignment with their stated commitments to sustainable operations and forest conservation by only sourcing a pulp from forests where at-risk species are protected and indigenous rights are respected. Rachel, you mentioned toilet paper. And of course, COVID-19, when it hit, uh, there was a huge uh, uh, everybody was out of toilet paper everywhere as people were stocking up on that item. I think it's good for people to just look critically at every, you know, at, at everything that their consumer dollars support, because we often, you know, in Ontario, we've been encouraging our supporters to um, write letters to the province, to engage in consultation processes and, to be honest, lately we are just completely ignored and people put a lot of effort often into weighing in and it feels disheartening often um, when you feel completely unheard. But I think consumers should realize that they do have power in their purchasing choices and especially 
um, especially if they let the producers know that they care. I mean, producers are going to listen to consumers. And when we've had conversations with Procter & Gamble, a lot of times they say, oh, people don't want recycled toilet paper. And, you know, and sometimes even people say like, it's not as soft, which is, it's just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. um, again, it's something you're using for two seconds and I've used recycled toilet paper Mm -hmm. for, I don't know how many years. And, Mm -hmm. you know, like I can assure you that my bottom is not like broken out in rashes because of (laughs) sandpaper like use or anything. Um, I, I think people, toilet paper is just, it's really a perfect example of something that most Grocery stores do carry recycled toilet paper um, and you have the purchasing power to just through your consumer habits, make it a difference and, and possibly make a difference to, to caribou in, in Canada's boreal forests that again are threatened with extinction. So they will become extinct or extirpated, which just means like some of the herds become extinct unless status quo practices change. And status quo practices are probably only going to change when the public calls for them to change because environmental organizations on our own have been doing as much as we can to try to create the pressure for provinces to uphold what the federal government directed them to do, which is manage each caribou range for caribou survival. And there has been very, very, very little movement, especially in Ontario. Like Ontario has not done any range plans nor said that it will. You know, companies were allowed to create plastics as for the purposes of selling their items and and make a profit without any of the responsibility of yeah. what their plastics were going to be doing, how they were going to re- recoup or, or, you know, their impact. And uh, why is it that we have allowed this to happen? Because this is the same thing with what we're talking about here. Um, it seems more and more every day that we should be starting to be aware that this planet is all related. Uh, as we decrease more and more of the forests by using them for these kind of products, forests are going to be disappearing. And we've heard about how the impact of farming, for instance, and how it's turning the world into a desert in so many areas, those kind of things that we are doing to ourselves. And we don't seem to be wanting to look at because we're doing it for whatever has been easy to make a profit at doing. Yeah, I think um, you raised three (laughs) really salient points. Um, Two of them are we're living in a climate crisis and a biodiversity crisis. We're living through a sixth extinction. And I know probably more than anyone how overwhelming it can be because it's, you know, it's, it's something that I work on every day and I Mm -hmm. find it quite overwhelming and I've been doing it for 20 years. Sure. But I think one of the most empowering things in the face of that overwhelmingness is to take action. Mm. And hopefully, you know, people can look at, there's a number of different websites. There's a report called The Issue with Tissue that was put out by my colleagues at um, the National Resources Defense Council in the States. There are actions that people can take. And I actually find that taking action is one of the best ways to kind of, to feel like you have agency and to feel a sense of hope and positivity in the face of all this overwhelming information. And the second is that we live in a finite planet. Like there's Mm -hmm. only so many resources we can extract and there's only so many places that wildlife can live. And this planet provides us with everything we need to survive. And we have a responsibility back to the planet Mm -hmm. to steward the planet and to ensure that our actions aren't totally diminishing it for future generations and for other living things that also depend on 
it for life. You know, you mentioned about taking action, and and the thing that comes to mind is the simplest action I can think of that people can do if they are upset with a company that is not maybe uh, acting in its best uh, performance for the environment or for practices that might be sustainable uh, would be to just simply not buy their product. That that would hit them, I think, right where where it counts, would it not? I think it's probably even more strategic to email them and to voice your concerns because they won't know if you stop buying their product, why you stop buying their product. So I think holding accountable to the interest of a public. Yeah, I think I was talking about en masse when I said that. Oh, a number of organizations definitely do call for boycotting products. It's not um, the strategy that the David Suzuki Foundation is using. We, Our letter was in support of our colleagues um, who are working with the companies, trying to get them to change their procurement policies. Mm. But yes, certainly as, as consumers, we do also have the option of just not purchasing a product. If we have information that that producer is doing things that we don't support and also that they have been approached by it and have not um, agreed to change their practices. And, and I think you're right. There are many recyclable uh, and reusable products. Toilet paper, I do the same thing. I always look for what is recycled when I'm, I'm purchasing that kind of an item. Uh, it isn't necessary, at least uh, for our family, to use, uh, you know, first-use forest uh, for for wiping ourselves with. Uh, and, and, and like you said, I don't really notice a difference, uh, you know, maybe, maybe a little bit, but... Pfft, you know, is it really that important? Um, yeah. So, uh, so yeah, these things are are vitally important to to us uh, to to get under control. Hopefully, uh, as you say, companies will see that uh, things are changing. And you know, we we also have to remember that when we're talking about companies and we're talking about business, uh, companies and business are made of people. It, you know, we we look at them sometimes like they're separate from us. And, 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 but they are made of people, just like everyone on this planet. They're run Definitely, by people. Yeah. And so people that are in those companies should be uh, aware and should be hopefully making the decisions that are in the best interest uh, of, uh, of, of long-term, uh, you know, sustainability on this planet. Uh, as we all know, and as you pointed out, we're running out of, of things we can keep taking and not be stewards of and not be uh, be aware of. And we, you know, the indigenous belief is that, you know, we've borrowed this planet from our children and that's who this planet's going to be going to. So you have to think of those seven generations. You have to think of the future um, in any decision that we are making, especially now it's, it's becoming so aware uh, to us that we need to be doing this. That's right. Rachel, anything else that you feel is important to mention um, that we haven't touched on just before we finish up? Well, I do think um, it's it's important that consumers take a little bit of time to just um, visit an environmental organization's website so that they are able to cut through the greenwash because the first line of defense of a number of companies and purchasers is just to say, we're doing everything great, we're totally sustainable, rah, rah, and to be able to discern like... Um, what is what is actually happening and environmental organizations i think are are highly trusted um our interests are like you know i'm a wildlife campaigner my interest is that wildlife survive 
And again, we're not trying to shut down industry. We're just trying to make sure that it operates within limits so that we can share the planet with other living things. Mm. Rachel, been a real pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us. My pleasure. That's Rachel Plotkin. She's the Boreal Project Manager with the David Suzuki Foundation. And uh, we've been talking with her about well, a number of things. But, but we started talking about a letter that was signed by about 3,000 Canadians. And it was submitted to Procter & Gamble in advance of their annual shareholders meeting in Cincinnati. And uh, it was sent to try and uh, see if they could... Uh, be more more uh, forthcoming in their commitments to sustainable operations and forest conservation and by only sourcing pulp from forests where at-risk species are protected and, of course, indigenous rights are respected. It's been a pleasure to have her on the show, and it's always a pleasure to have you listening to our show each and every day. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth, and we'll see you tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.